when you look at that with the microscope, with the different staining methods, perfusion methods, then you may as well be looking at completely different myocardial and cardiac pathologies. It looks just completely different when you look at it with, with pathology methods. So we believe that the hypothetical optimal treatment for these patients in the future will be depending on what precise tissue injury stage the patients are in. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, I have the honor and the privilege of having with me Professor Andreas Kumar. Uh, Dr. Kumar is um, a practicing cardiologist in Sudbury, Northern Ontario. He is an associate professor of medicine at Northern Ontario School of Medicine University. And he's the president of the Canadian Society of Cardiovascular Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or cardiovascular MR, CMR, as we all know it. And um, he has graciously um, agreed to be on board with us um, in parallel with a manuscript which has um, been published online um, on the 29th of October, um, which um, discusses a novel classification of myocardial infarction. So how we think about acute myocardial infarction, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society has published a novel classification scheme um, online in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology uh, with an editorial with Professor Deepak Bhatt. Um, so with that introduction, uh, Andreas, uh, welcome to Parallax. Welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Oh, thank you very much, Ankur, for having me. It's a great uh, privilege to be on this show. I've been a big fan of your show for a long time, and I've greatly enjoyed the previous episodes. It's a, a real privilege for me to be on the show today. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, the, the pleasure and the, the privilege and the honor are all ours. Well, you know, the, the sentiment is mutual. So I'm going to just uh, dive right in um, and start asking you about um, you know, sort of the precipice of uh, developing a novel classification scheme for acute myocardial infarction. Why did the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, the authors of this manuscript, which, you know, for the listenership um, is available online, um, like I said before in the introduction, and we're going to, sh we're going to share the link with, with our listenership as well in the show notes. Um, why do you think uh, this was warranted, Andreas? Sort of take us through the precipices of this a little bit. Yeah, so the Canadian Cardiovascular Society um, published a new classification of acute atherothrombotic myocardial infarction. Really, this goes back to work that I have been doing together with um, my good friend and colleague, Rohan, starting almost um, 15, 16 years ago. Now, we, we realized that the common classification schemes that we have are obviously super helpful. They guide us in our diagnostic assessment and in the treatment of our patients. But we found that there's a very, very fundamental aspect that is actually missing. And it is the implementation of tissue changes that occur with acute myocardial infarction into the clinical setting. So what I'm talking about here is that we have all these classifications, for example, the universal definition, which looks at the etiology 
of myocardial infarction, which is very helpful. And then it guides us in terms of how we address these issues. We have risk stratification scores that Timmy risk score, the heart score, other scores that help us to kill the classification. But really, we have learned a lot about the tissue changes that occur at the level of the myocardium and the microvessels. And a lot of this research had been done based on pathology studies in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And then we got this incredible opportunity with in vivo tissue imaging with MRI. And we learned more with the tissue imaging techniques with MRI, contrast, echo, and also with uh, angiographic flow assessment. And we learned that there's actually a lot more happening in the tissue than just cardiomyocyte necrosis. There's myocardial edema, there's reperfusion injury with microvascular obstruction and myocardial hemorrhage. And these issues actually led us to develop a new classification because we had a, a number of important realizations. We learned that these tissue injuries are all connected, but they are actually an escalating cascade of tissue injuries. So at the very beginning, you have myocardial edema, you have reversible injury. And then if the patient with an atherothrombotic myocardial infarction does not get treated in time, then the injury will progress and lead to cardiomyocyte necrosis. And only then as the next step will there be microvascular injury, so microvascular obstruction. And as a fourth step, there will be reperfusion hemorrhage. So there's a cascade of injury that we believe needs to be put onto the center stage of attention here because it is very important for, for several reasons. First of all, um, we have a cascade of injury that reflects the severity of tissue injury. So let me um, quickly tell you about the four stages that we're, I'm talking about. So the Canadian Cardiovascular Society classification has four stages of myocardial infarction. The first stage is aborted myocardial infarction. This is when you have epicardial coronary artery thrombosis, but you're quick to provide therapy or perhaps there's spontaneous abortion of the MI and the patient has minimal injury. The second stage is cardiomyocyte necrosis which leads to significant damage of the heart muscle. But critical here is that the microvessels are still intact. And at stage three and stage four, you have microvascular involvement with microvascular obstruction at stage three. So the microvessels are actually still anatomically intact, but they are obstructed. And at stage four, you have disruption of the microvessels with reperfusion and you enter a territory of hemorrhagic myocardial infarction, which has profound implications for patient care. So this is what we had realized over the last few years. And we then brought this forward to the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, and they made us go through a very rigorous uh, process. And the Canadian Cardiovascular Society asked us then subsequently to create an expert panel, uh, which we did, and we wrote it up. And they then reviewed it and put us through a review process. And finally, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society said, okay, this is actually valid. And we will endorse this and we will publish this as the Canadian Cardiovascular Society classification of acute atherothrombotic myocardial infarction. You know, congratulations uh, for uh, 
this feat. And, you know, thank you for going over the classification scheme with us uh, for acute arthrothrombotic myocardial infarction. In terms of, um, in terms of how this gets imbibed in clinical practice um, and, um, you know, perhaps how people start rethinking about acute myocardial infarction, how, how do you think this changes what we do at the bedside? You know, is what I'm asking you. Um, uh, do you do you foresee um, imminent, immediate changes, um, or have have the um, you know committee members recommended a sort of a practical application of this classification scheme when assessing patients clinically at the bedside? So I think there are no immediate clinical changes that this um, classification will trigger right now tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. But what it does is it provides the very basic information that not all myocardial infarctions are the same. So right now, when we see a patient with an, let's just say an anterior ST elevation myocardial infarction, which is obviously the most dangerous uh, type of acute atherosthrombotic MI, we may have two patients that look the same. They may have the same age, the same gender, the same anterior territory, the same immediate reduction in their ventricular function, the same mid-LAD occlusion, and they reperfuse them. But the basic information from this paper is that if you actually start looking at the level of the tissue, then not all myocardial infarctions are the same. And there is this cascade of stage one, two, three, four, which will translate over a spectrum of aborted MI, stage two cardiomyocyte necrosis, stage three microvascular obstruction, stage four hemorrhage. It will translate into deteriorating prognosis for the patient. And this is data that is quite well established from mostly imaging studies, but also interventional studies looking at, at no reflow. There's a lot of studies looking at aborted MI versus non-aborted MI. And the increase in risk for the patient is rather dramatic. So when you go from an aborted MI to a more evolved myocardial infarction, so you, a CCS, you go from a CCS stage one to a two, three, or four, immediately you have an increase of major adverse cardiovascular event rates of about two to 10 times. 10 times increased risk is a massive increase in cardiovascular risk. When you go from a myocardial infarction with or without, so excuse me, if you go from MI without reperfusion injury to an MI with reperfusion injury, so with microvascular obstruction or hemorrhage, the event rate will go up two times to four times roughly. And there's a recent large meta-analysis looking specifically at hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. When you compare hemorrhagic to non-hemorrhagic MI, there's an increase in adverse event rates two to six times. So the first clinically important information is that if we can acquire enough clinical information about the patient to understand what CCS stage they are in, then we can actually get a very good idea of what risk category the patient is going to be in. Now, this is a brand new classification. It's uh, a few hours old at this point. So 
we have the information that I just mentioned from studies that have been published and that have done that very well. However, they didn't really use the classification as a scheme because it doesn't exist yet, but we believe pretty pretty certain that this information will then be confirmed in, in prospective studies. So we will have at first for the bedside a clinical risk assessment tool. The second issue that will affect bedside clinical care will be therapies to, de to be developed in the future. So the, the risk assessment tool that I spoke about is already very, very powerful. Now, when you do basic and translational research, and I have done some of that and together with the teams and, and my colleagues that I've been working with, when you look at tissue samples of these patients and you look at hemorrhagic MI, non-hemorrhagic MI with microvascular obstruction, you look at abortion MI where there's really no or only minimal cardiomyocyte necrosis and the microvessels are perfectly fine. When you look at that with the microscope, with the different staining methods, perfusion methods, then you may as well be looking at com completely different myocardial and cardiac pathologies. It looks just completely different when you look at it with, with pathology methods. So we believe that the hypothetical optimal treatment for these patients in the future will be depending on what precise tissue injury stage the patients are in. So this injury progresses from stage one to two to three to four. And the hypothetical optimum treatment will very likely depend on what level of tissue injury and what specific pathology of tissue injury has evolved in the given patient. So we will have to stop treating everybody the same at some point in the future and take this information into account. And if we take this into information into account, we will be moving to a more personalized, a more patient-specific, a tissue injury-specific therapy. We will be able to tailor our therapies. And the classification that the Canadian Cardiovascular Society published will lay the groundwork of that. That is what we believe will be coming to the bedside with the help of this classification in the coming years. You know, thank you for um, going over the, the steps to um, make this applicable uh, you know, clinically and clinically relevant. In terms of um, garnering you know, risk for patients, I mean, you mentioned as uh, one progresses down the classification scheme to uh, you know, two, three, and four, uh, the, the risk is heightened. Um, as of now, you know, based on, uh, tissue staging from cardiovascular MR and, you know, I'm not even certain that it is standard of care, at least in the U S it's not standard of care that all patients following an acute myocardial infarction, you know, get cardiovascular MR and perhaps, uh, this new classification scheme, uh, you know, changes that, um, how do you, or what are some of the uh, steps, um, some of the interventions or some of the clinical decision-making steps that one can take or one can discuss with patients to optimize that risk? Um, you know, because, you know, if there are stages two, three, and four, and sort of the initial damage is done and pending 
you know, further evaluation of novel therapeutic interventions to, uh, you know, mitigate these stages at different, different levels of progression. How do you then uh, optimize risk based on what, what, what we know from cardiovascular MR? Akor, I think you um, really put your finger on, on an absolute um, top key point here. So this is a, a, a billion dollar or multi-billion dollar question of how can we hopefully dial back the tissue injury that has evolved or at least stop it from progression. And um, uh, let me just highlight to you why I believe this question is so important. Right now, we do not take the advanced uh, classification or tissue characterization into account. And the reason why we mostly do not do that is because we do not have specific therapies that have translated into improvement of patient prognosis for patients, especially with microvascular obstruction and certainly not with hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. So there are, of course, studies that looked at no reflow and there are multiple clinical trials that looked at um, therapies, for example, with GP2B receptor antagonists. Um, we had a lot of promising trials that showed that epicardial coronary artery flow can actually be improved when no free, no reflow is present. However, these studies did not translate in big numbers into improved outcome for our patients. So this is some a case-to-case decision that we take sometimes to provide the patient with a therapy. But what this classification actually delivers is the fundamental new idea that we need to put the level of tissue injury, the stage of tissue injury, the CCS stage of tissue injury now to the center of our attention. Because only when we start thinking about this, then we'll be, we will be able to start thinking about developing therapies for it. So what those future therapies will be is, is very, very difficult to say. Um, but when you look at the therapies that we're providing right now for these patients with acute thrombotic MI, when you look at, for example, um, beta blocker therapy, we get a risk reduction of about, um, depending on what trial you look at, but the maximum risk reduction is about 20%. So a hazard rate of, eight, of 0.8 for major events. And it is certainly guideline-based therapy because of this effect. But when you look at the flip side of the medal, how, so this is for risk reduction, the therapy that we have for risk reduction. When we look at how risk increases with the increasing CCH stages, then we're not talking about you know, 10, 20%, but we're talking of manifold increase in risk. So the basic information that the risk goes up with each stage of tissue injury, that is actually in itself very, very powerful. We're talking about 10 times increased risk from stage one to combined two, three, four, and then two to four times risk increase when reperfusion injury is present and two to six times when hemorrhage is present. So a very powerful increase. And the classification now provides us with a tool to assess this. The clinical translation of the classification will be easier once 
therapies will develop, which is what you alluded to. The most hopeful uh, target is, in my biased opinion, a hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. This hemorrhagic myocardial infarction is, is the worst type of myocardial infarction. It is what we now call the CCS stage four myocardial infarction. And it has been for a long time, based on pathology studies, associated with bad outcomes. Bad outcomes in terms of a very strong association with mechanical complications. So those being free wall rupture, septal rupture, papillary muscle rupture. It is associated with intramural dissecting hematoma, which is terrible news. Mechanical complications, of course, a condition that for the patient is almost like a death sentence, a, a bare the survival with a mechanical complication in acute MI is about in the, in the 0.5 to 1 or 2% range. It's not more than that. And these patients, unfortunately, usually don't make it. And now we have this classification that will allow us to, to capture this as a, as a spectrum and, and give us a semi-quantitative tool to see where the patient actually is. Now, in terms of therapy, Hemorrhagic myocardial infarction, so CCS stage 4 MI, is actually a beast of its own. And we learned a lot about this in the last 10 or so years, predominantly by the outstanding work of my very good uh, colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Dharma Kumar. So what we learned is, among others, that hemorrhage is terrible news. So first of all, if you allow me for a second to just go back to basic uh, physiology, um, the hemorrhage physiology triggers hemostasis, and that is a very profound physiology of the human body that really keeps our species alive. So if you allow me to just give you a, a quick example, let's just imagine you're um, cutting onions in the kitchen and you have just a tiny little injury and you just cut your skin just a little bit, really not much at all, nothing to worry, but you're losing blood a milliliter per minute, which is nothing. Um, in an hour, you'll have lost 60 ml. After a day, you will have lost um, about, two, uh, about a liter or so of blood. After two days, if the bleeding doesn't stop, you'll get dizzy after three days. There's no way you can survive because you really lost a lot of blood. So the, we don't die from a tiny little injury because hemostasis kicks in and immediately, immediately stops the bleeding. So when you have a, a hemorrhage occurring in the myocardium, there's a massive pathophysiology that gets triggered with salvage of free nitric oxide, every biochemical trick in the book to cause vasoconstriction is being triggered uh, free NO is being salvaged. Arginase, which so arginine is the substrate for NO, it gets uh, degraded to ornithin. Arginase gets blocked. There's a upregulation of um, uh, thrombophilic um, enzymes. There's uh, cell adhesion molecules that blatant uh, cell adhesion molecules that get upregulated on the cell surface. So we are getting into an exacerbation of thrombosis and vasoconstriction. Now, if you're talking about a patient with an acute MI and you're dealing with mitrovascular thrombosis and vasoconstriction, while on the epicardial level, you're trying to get vasodilatation and 
thrombolysis and coronary flow, then you have on the tissue level something counteracting all of your efforts. So hemorrhage, in a nutshell, is a target where we can, if we can dial this down, we can probably gain a lot for the patient. There's a lot of research that was done, as I mentioned, by my colleague and friend, Dr. Dharma Kumar. And what we learned here is that hemorrhage triggers very unique pathophysiologies. There's iron deposition in the tissue. There's um, macrophages that come in with phagocytosis of these iron crystals that get deposited. There's a perpetual inflammatory reaction that comes on only in hemorrhagic MI, which then leads to uh, fatty degeneration of the tissue and a fatty scar. Most importantly, when hemorrhage occurs, there's actually an additional injury that occurs in the myocardium. So you have the area at risk, and as the injury evolves, you have the wave front of cardiomyocyte necrosis, and we try to stop this cardiomyocyte necrosis um, by early reperfusion. If you get to a point where you reperfuse and you have hemorrhage, you have a new tissue injury building up, you have a bleed inside the myocardium, with all the pathophysiology triggered that I mentioned earlier, but importantly, there is a post-reperfusion infarct expansion that occurs. Now let this just sink in for a second here. We try to reperfuse the patient in order to stop the wave front of cardiomyocyte necrosis. But if we reperfuse and there's a hemorrhagic MI that evolves as a consequence of the reperfusion, then there is actually an additional injury that occurs and it leads to infarct expansion after the reperfusion. So these patients get an infarct size increase of more than twofold in the first 48 hours up to 72 hours after reperfusion. And we published this last year in Jack. And we could see this in, in an animal model and with the corresponding troponin data in patients. So not only does the infarct size get larger, you get the specific pathology of iron deposition and the, and the related pathophysiology, which is terrible because it leads to specific continuous inflammatory activity and then to fatty degeneration of the scar. And when we look at these patients eight weeks out, the infarct size actually remains larger. They have worse remodeling of the scar. And all of this was seen in patients that with and without hemorrhagic MI that entered with an identical area at risk. So these patients were essentially very, very similar. But when the hemorrhage occurred, we saw this infarct expansion. And because there is specific biochemical and inflammatory pathways that get triggered with hemorrhagic infarction after reperfusion, I believe that there may be some therapeutic targets where we may be able to come in and, and um, dial down the effects of the injury, hopefully. Coming back to the classification, what the classification provides is, first of all, the very, very fundamental information that not all myocardial infarctions are the same. You may have on your coronary care unit two patients and they may have the same gender and the same age and the same ST segment uh, elevation pattern, let's say the precordialis or inferiorities, whatever it may be. But when you look at the tissue, they are not the same. And if we are able to capture this information and see what is actually going on, is it hemorrhage, is it MVO? And now to facilitate that, is it? CCS stage one, two, three, or four, then we will be able to predict how the patient is going to do, and we will be hopefully providing 
the targets for future tissue-directed therapies. We believe that in the next 5, 10, 20 years, we may have specific therapies for each specific CCH stage. And the differentiation of these myocardial infarction will translate, hopefully, into differentiated therapies. And we will be able to use this classification scheme for tissue-directed therapy. So what is this classification going to do? Let me, let me just um, recap what I believe it's going to do. First of all, this classification scheme, I believe, will help us to understand the risk of a given patient that we are treating for an acute atherothrombotic MI. The risk goes up as the injury goes up in CCS stage one. Stage one, aborted. Stage two, cardiomyocyte necrosis. Stage three, microvessel obstruction. Stage four, hemorrhagic MI. So as the patient progresses in their injury, we can hopefully get prognostic information. And again, the the tissue injury progression is optional, theoretically. If we come in and we we provide the patient with therapy in an early and appropriate fashion, then we can stop the injury at an, at an earlier stage. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we believe that these CCS stages of acute MI could be used as endpoints in clinical trials. So right now when we do clinical trials, we look at patients with acute atherothrombotic MI. Um, we look at outcomes, of course, heart outcomes like death, heart failure, arrhythmia, rehospitalization. But we will be able to refine our assessment by, by using this classification and by applying it in clinical trials. If we have a new therapy that we're testing for acute myocardial infarction, we see as an outcome that there is less stage four and less stage three then we may actually have found a therapy that may be able to be cardioprotective and reduce the injury as it evolves on the tissue level. At the level of um, basic and translational research, I mentioned this already, the tissue injury is very much different. And I encourage everyone to have a look at the basic and translational literature. When you just look at the images, it is really like you're looking at different diseases almost. So on the tissue level, stage one, stage two, stage three, and stage four are profoundly different. So the, the best therapy will probably be different. And then the last point where it may probably make a difference in health systems research. So when we look at how, if, how effective our hospitals, our healthcare systems are working, and we make an improvement at a health systems level. And that may be improving workflow, improving diagnostic efficacy, improving access to the cath lab. Then we may be able to use the CCS classification as endpoints. And we can perhaps come up with statements that, you know, we improved our cath lab access, we improved our STEMI program. And now as a result, we are seeing less stage four myocardial infarction. We're seeing less stage three myocardial infarction. We're seeing more aborted myocardial infarction. So we believe that the classification can have profound implications on all levels. But 
what we're seeing right now is only the first step. We just put it out there a few hours ago, and um, we believe it's fundamental, and we, but we believe that it can possibly have profound implications for everything that we do with our patients in acute myocardial heart infarction. Oh, thank you for eloquently explaining in detail what the classification does to the current paradigm of clinical practice. Is this paradigm changing? It's paradigm shifting, clearly. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see the future investigational therapies that target um, hemorrhage as uh, a, hard, a hard endpoint and also, you know, tie it closely with some of the clinical endpoints that we see, particularly mortality and heart failure in, in post-acute myocardial infarction patients, I think would be fascinating. And um, almost, I would say, a final frontier, because I know that um, ischemia reperfusion has been uh, the final frontier for interventional cardiology. And some of the studies in ischemic preconditioning have been promising, but have not really panned out to the point where it's become standard of care guideline recommendation. Um, so, you know, what you've uh, proposed in this novel classification scheme clearly is, you know, like I mentioned, is paradigm shifting. Um, a final few minutes in the in the podcast here, and, you know, again, congratulations on uh, what the group has accomplished, uh, you know, to you as well as Dr. Dharma Kumar. And um, again, for the listenership, but we have the link to the paper in the show notes and as well as the editorial by Dr. Deepak Bhatt, uh, who's, you know, been a guest at Parallax and uh, his his editorial is also in the show notes. Um, Andreas, um, for the final few minutes of the episode, again, dialing back to what we can do now in the interim, um, and maybe you know a sneak peek into what you think maybe uh, future targets, uh, future therapeutic um, options, and uh, you know certainly target hemorrhage as a target. Um, I think for the listenership, what would be helpful would be, and I'm going to ask you this in, in a leading question format, is that we know that uh, in the acute myocardial infarction stage, beta blockers are our cornerstone. You, you mentioned that at the beginning of the conversation. Certainly dual antiplatelet therapy, high-intensity statin therapy. I think where, um, I, I don't think, I, I think guidelines do a good job in mentioning these agents as well. Uh, I, I do. I still do not see them as widely used as beta blockers, perhaps, uh, in patients with acute myocardial infarction. Now, it depends if there is associated ischemic left ventricular systolic dysfunction. I would certainly see uh, neurohormonal agents like you know ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. What do you have to say about agents like spironolactone, which has an indication in, in acute myocardial infarction, and colchicine? And some excellent data out of Europe, European investigators, and then SGLT2 inhibitors, which you know seem to probably be uh, working in every uh, disease um, subtype within cardiovascular medicine. Um, where do you see these three agents particularly play a role, if any, uh, in the hemorrhagic myocardial infarction subtype? This is uh, um, first of all, this is a great question. Um, Fundamentally, what I think is we need to reconsider the therapy that the therapies that multiple therapies that we're providing, taking this new classification into account. Because what we know from the clinical trials is that 
the medications that we're using based on the appropriate guideline recommendations, they work in this group of patients with acute atherothrombotic MI. But these patients are usually included in the trials based on diagnostic criteria like type 1 infarction according to the universal definition, or you have ST elevations, you include STEMI patients. And then this group of patients gets assessed for the respective drugs that you that, that you mentioned, and that may be ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, statin, spiral molecular, SCLT2 inhibitors. And the, the group in itself has a favorable response compared to the placebo group, and then we decide to go forward. But what really is a fundamental question that we're proposing here is if you take the CCS classification and you reassess all these data that we have using the CCS classification, what is it that we're going to see? And I don't know the answer, but I could very well imagine that, for example, perhaps you will find that you know, these therapies actually are working very, very well on stage two where you have cardiomyocyte necrosis, but maybe they're less effective at stage three and stage four. Maybe there's therapies for stage three and stage four that are specific to stage three and stage four. What exactly is it going to be for stage three and stage four, especially for stage four for hemorrhagic myocardial infarction? I do not know. Um, the most interesting drug group here right now is iron chelators because the pathology, there's, there's different waves of pathology in hemorrhagic infarction. First of all, it's the infarct expansion, which then re results in dramatically larger infarct size, infarct size times two and more, and then adverse remodeling. But this then also translates into worse LV function. So all these heart failure therapies will probably, probably, be helpful in this infarction group. But what the classification opens up is a new way of looking myocardial infarction, a more differentiated way of looking at acute atherothrombotic MI. And perhaps we will be able to identify medications or pharmacological or perhaps non-pharmacological agents that will address specifically stage three, specifically stage four. And perhaps we may learn that therapies that are beneficial for stage two, three, and four are maybe not needed for a stage one. If you have an aborted MI and the patient walks with normal LV, walks out with normal LV function, um, maybe we can save them the therapy that we would provide to other other patients. So the fundamental information from the classification is that not all myocardial infarctions are the same. Not all STEMIs are the same. If we start looking at this terrible disease through the lens of this four-step classification, maybe we will be doing a better job in the future at providing care for our patient. No, I'm, uh, Andreas, this has been a great discussion. And again, you know, this has been very detailed, um, very nuanced. And, you know, I thank you for your expertise on this topic. And again, congratulations on on producing such uh, an excellent comprehensive document, um, you know, from me as well as from the entire team at Parallax. Um, and we're honored and, and privileged that we 
you know, get to have you as a guest and talk to us in, in depth about uh, this new classification scheme. Um, any closing remarks about uh, Parallax, about our listenership uh, from you and, you know, certainly help spread the word about this episode in, in Canada? Yes. So I, uh, I like to, first of all, say I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be on the show. Um, you mentioned Rohan, my, um, my good friend and, and, um, and co-worker, but I just want to say that this classification is a summary of work that has been done by an army of people. Like microvessel obstruction was identified in 1974. What we did with this classification is we really took the work that was done in the last four or five decades and we put it into a new perspective. So these hundreds and perhaps thousands of people who worked on myocardial infarction, uh, they just need to be acknowledged here. And we're very, very grateful to to um, have also such fantastic co-authors and and uh, experts on the on the panel who wrote this paper together um, with us. Uh, the podcast is just fantastic. I just enjoyed so much. I listened. There's two episodes that I really remember. Um, the episode with Deepak Bhatt and very recently the episode with Valentin Fuster. It was just a delight to listen to. So thank you, Angkor, for doing this podcast. It's every um, time a new episode comes out, it's a highlight and I can't wait. So thank you very much and thank you for having me on the show. I know, again, you know, the pleasure is all ours. And, um, you know, once this is out, I'll certainly share, uh, you know, the podcast episode with you and, um, you know, for the listeners who keep tuning in every other Monday to listen to us, uh, you know, do rate us and review us on platforms like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Uh, you know, you can share your feedback via email or on social media platforms, you know, like X or, or LinkedIn. Uh, we uh, take your comments and feedback very seriously, and we try to get guests who you want to listen from. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next Monday, um, you know, best wishes to everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.